You are listening to a sermon by Ted Hamilton, Senior Pastor of New Life Presbyterian Church in Escondido, California. For more information about New Life, visit us online at newlifepca.com. That's N-E-W-L-I-F-E-P-C-A dot com. Thank you for that uh, warm welcome. It's good to be with you again, especially to open God's Word and to hear what God has for us. Would you please stand if you're able? John chapter 12, verses 12 through 19. John 12, beginning at verse 12. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went out to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. This is God's word. Please be seated. Let us pray. Our gracious God and our Father, we pray that you would send the light of your grace and your truth into our hearts this morning through this word, that you would shine upon us what we need to hear, what we need to see, what we need to do. And most especially as the Lord Jesus Christ is presented to us again this day, that we would behold him as we ought, and receive him as we should. And Father, this we cannot do in our own strength, by our own wisdom, our own power. We need your spirit to be at work in us, to distract from our minds those things that would present obstacles to our embracing Christ as we need to. Help us in this, Father. We ask this as your children, and we pray it in Jesus' name, amen. Your ride is your identity. The car that you own very much presents your personality or something of your identity. Whether it's a big truck or a mini, uh, whether it is a VW Bug, very first car I owned, or a CAD, whether it's a Toyota or a Tesla, I would say especially, this is true for Tesla owners, but I digress. Uh, much of your personality is wrapped up in that, in that uh, vehicle that you own in high school in western Nebraska. I remember with great pride driving down Main Street, Maywood, Nebraska, a town of 300 people in our 1967 Ford F100. Did you even know such a thing existed? F100, straight six. 
Amazing horsepower, 242 horsepower. And then, of course, us SUV owners, we don't think we're better than the rest of you. We actually are. Now, this came home to me a few weeks ago when I was teaching Sunday school in our church. And I needed to make an illustration using a vehicle. And I knew I would be safe uh, pissing, uh, picking an ugly vehicle that nobody could possibly love, and that was an AMC Pacer wagon. Made my illustration. Then after Sunday school, want to go home, peace, mind my own business, here come two or three people coming up to me and they have that look on their face that they are not happy. And sure enough, all of them had owned AMC Pacer wagons. One of them going into the story telling me how her father gave her that car and I could see tears begin to well up in her eyes and say, I love that car. And then behind them came the Gremlin and the Vega owners to take a stand of solidarity with their Pacer brothers and sisters. One of them taking the bulletin, shaping it into a weapon. I'm about to get shanked in the church parking lot because I made fun of an AMC Pacer wagon. Now this came home to me in a real, real way. Back when Carol and I were expecting our fifth child and we decided we needed to move from a sedan to something a little bit more accommodating. So we tried a few vehicles and then we drove this 1993 GMC Safari. If you've never seen this, look it up online. It is, how do I say this, a very special looking vehicle. We drove it around, we came back and Carol came out of the vehicle with that huge smile on her face, a twinkle in her eye and she said, what did you think? I said, well, I think two things. Number one, that is positively the ugliest vehicle I've ever seen in my whole life. And number two, my sense is we are about to purchase it. <laughs> and we did. Those dark years when as a man driving around town in a minivan, every ounce of masculine dignity sucked out of my life. Now, you may not agree with everything I'm saying, but it's true, a little bit of your personality is in that, in that car that you own. A little bit of your identity is wrapped up in the way in which you are presenting yourself on some way, trying to present an image of yourself in, in that vehicle. And you see, the problem was with that minivan that we eventually <coughs> purchased. It was not the vehicle that I wanted, but it was the vehicle that our family needed. And the question we find this morning is, is the sort of this paradox that John presents to us in his account of the triumphal entry of Christ, there is the king clearly that the people want. But there is a king that they need. And both of these pictures are presented to us simultaneously in this passage. <clears throat> so if you'd like to take notes, there are three points. First of all, the king that they want, roughly verses 12 through 13. And then more clearly, verses 14 through 15, the king that they need. And then thirdly, as we reflect upon the gospel, the king we have. The king they want, the king they need, the king we have. So as we begin here, we have to appreciate the context of the crowds that are packed into Jerusalem. They have come for the Passover, the most highly attended Jewish feast. Josephus estimates 2.7 million Jews are in Jerusalem at this time, and they want to see Jesus. On the one hand, there's a crowd that is pouring out of Jerusalem because they have heard that Jesus was approaching the city 
And secondly, because they heard about Lazarus. They've heard about this amazing sign that Jesus raised this man from the dead. They've heard about this because we're told in verse 17 that those that actually saw Jesus do this in Bethany have come and they can't stop talking about it. They keep telling everybody in Jerusalem about this amazing miracle. And then secondly, there are the people that are coming from Bethany with Jesus as well those that saw Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead. They all come together just outside of Jerusalem and everyone takes up branches of palm trees, it says here, to go and meet Jesus, shouting and singing, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. It's from Psalm 118. Psalm 118 is dripping, saturated with messianic significance. What do we mean by that? The psalm is about the promised Christ, that anointed one of God who would come and deliver his people. And the word Hosanna, which means, oh, save us. You hear in that, come and rescue us and save us. And they're waving these palm branches, a a national symbol associated, as we were told earlier, uh, with peace, associated with peace, military peace, political peace, national peace. In Leviticus 23, we're told at the Feast of Booths, Israel was commanded to take up these palm branches and to rejoice with these symbols. Alexander the Great had palm trees imprinted upon the coins he had made. We have some of those coins even today for this very same message of of peace. So the crowd is singing and shouting, everybody's getting excited and they're wondering in their minds, is it possible? Can this be the Christ. The disciples were concerned about this. They had said many times to Christ, they had said, what are you going to establish your kingdom? Two of them even going so far as to say, can you give us that place in your kingdom on the right hand and upon the left? Because everyone is thinking if he can raise a man from the dead, perhaps he can unseat a Roman governor. Perhaps finally this is the one who will come and deliver Judea. And we're told here in this passage that all of this is only serving to aggravate the Pharisees. They see exactly where all of this is going and their position is threatened. They've been, they've had it out for Jesus for some time. They've hated him, envied him, tried to arrest him many times, and they want to kill him. And that demonic hatred goes so far, we're told that they wanted even to kill Lazarus. Here's the very evidence of the greatness of this man. Who can dispute a sign like this, the greatest of the signs that Christ has done in the first half of this gospel? We're told in chapter 11, verse 46, that some who witnessed this sign went and they, and they told the Pharisees, and, and perhaps we should assume with the best of motives that surely the religious leaders would be excited about this amazing miracle. But we're told here in verse 19, the Pharisees are panicking. We're getting nowhere. Nothing that we're doing is working. The whole world is going after him. And so you can see all of this is building and building. Jerusalem is like a pressure cooker. It's on the cusp of exploding. It all comes down to one thing. What is Jesus going to do? Will he capitalize upon this moment in the way that everyone wants? Well, verses 14 through 15, We're a little bit surprised by what we see here, that Jesus, first of all, enters Jerusalem openly. He joins in all this fanfare. 
and willingly allows himself to be placed in the very center of, a, of this attention, allowing all this, this praise to be given to him. The, the Pharisees rebuked him in the Matthew account and said, tell your disciples to stop. He says, no, if they did it, the stones would cry out. Christ is, it seems to be absorbing this. Now what's so surprising about this is that if you look at the entire ministry of Jesus, what is he doing? He is avoiding the spotlight. He's doing the exact opposite of what we read here. Constantly avoiding that attention. Constantly understating himself and deflecting the spotlight away from himself. Again and again, we find Jesus telling people, do not broadcast this miracle. For instance, in Mark 1, verse 44, he healed the leper. What does Jesus say after this amazing miracle? He says, say nothing about this to, to anyone. Or in Mark 16, our Lord said, who do you say that I am? He asked this of his his disciples, and it's Peter who says, well, you're the Christ. What is Christ's response? Not tell no one that I am the Christ. Or in Matthew 17, the Mount of Transfiguration, Peter, James, and John, they're coming down the mountain. The most amazing things these disciples have ever seen with their eyes. And what does he say there? Tell no one. And you see this also in the Gospel of John with the use of this, this word, the hour. In John chapter two, at the wedding of Cana, Christ is, is approached by his mother and tells Jesus they have no wine. He says, why do you involve me? My hour has not yet come. In chapter seven, verse 30, the authorities want to arrest him, but they can't. Why? Because John tells us his hour had not yet come. In chapter eight, verse 20, he's at the temple. They want to arrest him. Yes, you guessed it. His hour had not yet come. But now... It has. He steps right into the this, this, this spotlight. He's not subtle about it. He receives all this praise, all this attention. He seems to, to slide smoothly right into all this praise and acclamation of the crowd and even their expectations. However, Jesus does not enter this city the way we would expect of a king. How does a real king enter a city? On a war horse, with a full display, flaunting display of power and a show of wealth. When Alexander the Great defeated Darius III in the Battle of Issus in 333, he entered into, into Babylon with shouts and acceptance as if he were a hero because he did not sack the city. It was a bloodless taking over the city. And the, the artist, Charles de Brune, he captures the image of this, of Alexander the Great standing up in this huge chariot being drawn by two elephants. He actually did use elephants in, in warfare that he saw in Persia and incorporated them. But here he is being drawn by these two elephants, preceded by a train of trumpeteers, followed by thousands of mounted soldiers, surrounded by all the spoils of his victories and what he has gained from other cities. That's how you enter a city. Think of the book of Esther, even Mordecai. Mordecai was paraded on the royal mount of the king, draped in royal robes. That's how you proceed into a city. But Christ enters Jerusalem, seated on a donkey. So you're hearing Psalm 118, but the author is telling us you should be thinking Zechariah 9.9. 
you're hearing acclamations of this king. You should be thinking, it says, Zechariah 9.9, your king is coming humble and sitting on a donkey's colt. So Jesus accepts the praises, but he is not accepting what they intend, their message, or the identity that they are trying to, to hoist upon Christ. Jesus instead is making a profound statement by the choice of his ride. And this donkey points directly to the identity that, that he intends. This is a deliberate choice by Jesus. We're told in the Matthew account in Matthew 21 that Christ actually made the arrangements ahead of time. He had this animal chosen. He tells two of his disciples, go to Jerusalem to this place. You'll find a donkey, bring that donkey to me. And we see this throughout the gospels that Christ is the one who's orchestrating these events in order to make a particular statement. In John chapter six, it's Christ that sends his disciples out on the, the Sea of Galilee ahead of him. And it's Christ who is sovereign by his majestic arm over all creation, who allows the, the sky to darken and the waves to begin to, to grow and to splash against this boat so that he at that point then could walk on the water to his disciples in order to prove again who he is. He does the same thing when he first called Peter in Luke 5. After teaching, standing in the boat of Peter, he says, let's, let's go out into the deep a little bit and let down our, the nets and let's catch some fish. And Peter said, we fished all night, we caught nothing, but we'll do it anyway. And they caught fish and began to tear the nets. And Peter went to his knees, I'm a sinful man, you should go away from me. And Christ says, fear not, from now on you'll be catching men. He's proving to him who he is and here he is again. Jesus choosing to, to send a message about himself as a king, about the nature of himself as a king, saying something about the nature of, of this kingdom. This is a kingdom unlike anything else you've ever seen. Yes, it's true, it's established on this earth, but it is not of this world. The point he's making, that he is not the king they want, but he is the king they need. This is no ordinary royal procession, this is no ordinary king. This king has chosen his ride deliberately to project his identity. You see, there's, on the one hand, there's the king they want and there's the king they need. They want a king who will deliver them from those political enemies that are ruling over them even now. But what they need, what they need is a king who will deliver them from their spiritual enemies, the ones that enslave them now and will do so for eternity unless he comes. They want a king who comes in splendor. No, they need a king who comes to suffer and to die. They want a king who exalts himself in a show of power. No, they need a king who humbles himself in a demonstration of love. They want a king that will bring them glory. You see, what they really need is a king who will carry their shame to the cross and bring glory to God. In verse 16, we're told, even the disciples don't really grasp what's going on. They don't understand what's happening, what's all these things being done to him, not until after he dies and is raised and is glorified. They do not know what they need. <clears throat> For some of you young children, it's just like in the movie Cars. 
when Lightning McQueen comes into the garage of Luigi, he says, all right, I need some tires. Give me some black walls. And what does Luigi says? He says, no, you do not know what you want. Luigi, he know what you want. I can fake the Italian accent because my wife is from Philadelphia. They don't know what they want. Do you know what you want? Do you know what you need? Do you need this savior? This king who comes riding on a donkey? Some Christians seem confused about this. A few years ago, some of you remember there was this televangelist trying to raise a modest amount for something he needed. Okay, it was $54 million because he needed a new private jet for his ministry. And here's what he said. If Jesus was alive today, he would not be riding a donkey. And somebody said, why not? This is the king that we need. And the king that we need is the king that we have. Christ presented himself as a humble king because Christ came to humble himself, not to exalt himself. This donkey is only a very, very small foretaste of what is to come, how he would humble himself even further. It's just like at the beginning of the next chapter when Christ takes on the form of a servant and he washes the feet of his disciples and Peter is saying, no, no. And Peter has no idea this is nothing compared to what Jesus will do when he will wash away the pollution of his soul on the cross. Christ made himself nothing. He was the Lord of all, became the servant of all by taking up the, the burden of, of human sin and wearing all of its shame and its condemnation and its curse. And he did so through these significant pictures, not just riding a donkey, but by wearing a crown of thorns and to be put into royal robes of purple, only to be mocked and then lifted up not on the throne to be praised, but on the cross to be ridiculed. Why did Christ humble himself? That's the question. Why did Christ humble himself? The answer is because this is the king that we needed. One who would willingly bow in humiliation and offer himself unto death on the cross in order that he might pay what you and I could not pay and to endure what you and I could not endure and to achieve what you and I could not achieve. To win for us this salvation that we do not deserve, clearly do not deserve, but we so desperately need so that we would be forgiven of our sins, that we would be made acceptable in the righteousness of Christ before God, that we would gain this inheritance of eternal life all because of this one who substituted himself in our place. And he is the king that we continue to need. We never outgrow our need for Christ. Today, you and I who've been walking with Christ for some years, now we see a thousand things in Christ that at the first we never dreamed of needing. Yes, it's true that at the very first we saw him and we confessed him genuinely as our Savior and our Lord. But what have we discovered ever since then? Ever since then, we've come to discover we also need him as our advocate, as our physician, as our shepherd, as our friend, as, as our refuge. Now we see we not only need his love, we need his steadfast love 
and his faithfulness. We need his power and his life and his wisdom and his righteousness, his forbearance and his sympathy and his comfort. And so now we find ourselves turning to him first in every need talking to him about every difficulty that we confront, consulting him at every step, and opening our hearts to him about every sorrow that we carry, and thanking him for every victory that we gain. And throughout the day, every day, we find ourselves looking to him and leaning on him at the first, we did not see all that we had in Christ. But now we truly see that he is our all in all. It's important that I remind you and me this morning that this king is coming again. In a procession that's going to look quite different than the one that we see here in John 12. And in fact, we read in Revelation chapter 19 that when Christ comes, that the heavens will be opened and he will come riding on a white horse to judge the nations in righteousness and on his head will be many diadems. Out of his mouth will come a sharp sword to strike down those who oppose him and he will come as king of kings and lord of lords. Your king who once humbled himself is now exalted above all things forevermore. There is no king like your king. And there is none more glorious, more honorable, more powerful. He was lowered to the depths of shame, but not any longer now. He is raised to the highest place of glory, seated above all rule and authority and power and dominion with all things under his feet. And he holds in his hands the keys of death and Hades. And yet today he is still gentle and lowly in heart but he is more than able to save you to the uttermost. To save you from your sin. To save you from all of your enemies, including death. His arm, it is as strong as it's ever been. His promises, they are as true as they have ever been. His heart is as loving as it has ever been. And he's coming again for you and for me. Praise God that he did not give to us the king that we wanted, but the king that we need. And we praise him that the king that we, that we need is the king that we have in Jesus Christ. And once you have Jesus, you have all that you could ever want. Let us pray. Our gracious God and our Father, again, we see that these are not the words of men. This is the living and active word of God. These things were written for us, and not merely as an example for us, but to hold out to us the Lord Jesus Christ, who was humbled for us and is now exalted for us. That he who suffered and offered himself to death, even death on a cross, is the one who is now ascended in his glory at your right hand, seated in majesty. And we are so grateful, Father, that he is sufficient in all of his work 
to save us from our sins. How we thank you, O Father, that there is nothing for us to fear. There is no reason for us to doubt the greatness of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we thank you that as we turn to him, we find one still who a bruised reed will not break, a smoking flax he will not snuff out. And yet he will lead forth his righteousness unto victory. What a great privilege it is to know him as Savior. What a great honor it is to name him as Lord. And so we do. Help us, O Father, truly to believe these things and to walk in them. We pray this in the beautiful, in the good, in the strong name of Jesus Christ. Amen. You've been listening to Ted Hamilton, Senior Pastor of New Life Presbyterian Church, Escondido. Please visit us in Escondido, California, or online at newlifepca.com. New Life Presbyterian Church, Escondido, reserves all copyrights as applicable by law. Thank you for listening.